When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. What makes us intelligent is also what makes us susceptible to self-deception. And so we've got these platforms that are intentionally weaponizing all of our biases, all of our kind of narcissism, all of the things that lead us away from truth. I've been exploring a new direction in thinking lately. I've been looking into a bunch of new ideas, wisdoms and, and really renegade thinkers that recognise that the status quo, all our current assumptions, ideologies and institutions that we used to rely on are fragmenting and collapsing and that we need new ways of thinking to make sense of it all and to solve it all. These new ideas are very challenging and renegade and often controversial. Today, my guest is David Fuller, who founded Rebel Wisdom, the hub for this new movement of big, wild thinking. He's a BBC and Channel 4 filmmaker who was the first mainstream TV journalist to cover the renaissance of psychedelic science back in 2008. He says that rebel wisdom is, and I quote, centred on the conviction that we are seeing a civilizational level crisis of ideas as the old operating systems break down. The new is struggling to emerge and the most transformative ideas always show up as rebellious. David also says it's about going on an adventure together to grow up, clean up, wake up and show up so that we can become effective players on the cutting edge of culture. Grow up, clean up, wake up and show up. I kind of like that line and it's very much wild. Now, via Rebel Wisdom, and I keep wanting to say Rebel Wilson for obvious reasons, David interviews Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Haidt, the founder of The Conciliation Project, Daniel Schmuttenberger, integrative theorist Ken Wilber. He gets us discussing heterodox thinking, the IDW or intellectual dark web. He discusses in layered and considered detail conspiracies, COVID vaccines, the Weinstein brothers and Ivermectin, psychedelics, culture wars. Joe Rogan, metamodernism, which I've touched on before in this series and will flesh out even more soon. These are all names and things that some of you may or may not have heard of, but it gives a little bit of a feel for what David does. But I met with David in London and was stoked to have been able to have a sit down chat with him to get him to give us a 101 in sense making. Now, sense making is, as it says on the packet, a framework for making sense of the complex and intersecting issues that we face today and that can do a better job of our current information ecosystem, which has been corrupted by a culture of lying, propaganda, conspiracies, binary thinking, and perpetuated, of course, by technology and I guess big corporate interests. I should say, <laughs> I actually arrived at his offices having uncovered a corruption virus in my computer that morning. So I'd lost all of my research and questions that I had prepared for David. And I had to turn up and ask if we could use his setup, like his computer, to record things. I'd also been shunted from my accommodation and stayed with a random Norwegian model the night before. And I'd had to cross town on a share bike with my full backpack on my back. And it was kind of all a bit hectic. I was very flustered, but David and I found a small cupboard in his sort of communal office to record this episode in. It's a bit echoey, but I reckon David's ideas well and truly fill the space. 
David, thank you so much for accommodating all of my hecticness. This morning was a bit hectic. My computers decided to crash. So we've set up a makeshift scenario in your offices in the smallest room. I think it's smaller than a toilet and we're using your setup. So everyone excuse mishaps and also the fact that this is going to have to be a bit of a, a loose conversation. Um, we'll let it go where it needs to go because all of my notes also disappeared onto my computer into the ether. So I'm actually okay with the idea of this being a kind of a loose discussion because what we're going to be discussing is sense-making. And I think there's no rigid linear way to discuss it. I think we're just going to have to go around in a few circles, but I really want people to get a feel for for sense-making and what it's about. I think most people I speak to say they are struggling to make sense of the world right now. Everything that's going like, who do you believe? Where is the truth? Nobody trusts mainstream media. They're not trusting even the scientists often. And I think all of the institutions and sources for information that we could like trust and then navigate the world from, they've been fragmented and they've collapsed. And of course, life is moving so fast. So I won't get too far ahead. I would love you to give a little bit of a definition of sense-making as you understand it, as somebody who is really um, a pivot point, a hub for the movement. Yeah, it's an interesting time after the pandemic, because I think the pandemic made it really apparent to a lot of people. I think there were already kind of stresses like the rise of alternative media, coming from a background in legacy media and then seeing how legacy media, mainstream media have been really challenged by the alternative, positives and negatives, like there's more voices than ever before, but there's also more difficulty in kind of discerning truth and the alternative and the the incentive structures, the alternative kind of which drive us towards filter bubbles, towards sort of polarization, are a real problem and that's also affecting the legacy media as well. By legacy media, you mean the standard media that we've had for a long time, TV, radio. Exactly. Some people call it mainstream media or MSM. I prefer not. I think that's a, I don't like that term because it's very reductive. It kind of assumes that there's one entity called the MSM or the mainstream media and I think that's not true. Yeah, legacy is a more accurate term. Yeah, kind of the, the media brand that you'll be familiar with, New York Times, Fox News, I think if you call it the MSM or mainstream media, it assumes a kind of yeah, it assumes a kind of universality of viewpoint, which isn't true. Like there's a lot more variety within mainstream media than people who denigrate it kind of seem to assume. Yes, but generally speaking, truth seeking is ever harder than it has been before. The institutions we've relied on for truth seeking, because there's so many more voices, a lot of the gaps in the narrative of the mainstream are more apparent than they ever were before. A lot of the ways that the mainstream has communicated has been a problem. They've kind of communicated in a way that there's grey areas. They've not told the whole truth in various times. That's been more and more highlighted, like a lot of the, the public health bodies. They're sort of like little white lies or worse, actual kind of... Full-blown lies. Full-blown lies are increasingly shown up because there's more and more accountability and more and more people looking at those. So we've seen a lot of that kind of from the mainstream side or the legacy side, we've seen that sort of start to eat away at their authority. But then in the alternative, we've got all of these... I use the word incentive structures. It's like people get captured by their audience. They start getting kind of, they start telling the audience what they want. During the pandemic, we had the whole rise of things like conspirituality. Which I've talked about on my various platforms and was alive and well in Australia. Yeah, we saw a lot of people, especially in the wellness industry, who found that when they started dropping like QAnon related stuff into their coverage, because people were really frightened during the pandemic, because there was suddenly an opportunity, they saw their views start to go up and a lot of people followed that. I talk about it as an incentive landscape, like the incentive landscape was rewarding that kind of content. And so the incentive landscape does not reward truth because, and we're also in this situation where we've got kind of the colonization of inner space by the tech platforms that keep us coming back. And what's worthwhile in keeping us coming back, it's division, it's tribalization, it's all of our negative biases. So in a way, we've had our kind of, we've always been prone to self-deception. Like that's one of the key topics that we cover on Rebel Wisdom. It's one of the key topics of sense-making. One of my favorite thinkers, John Vivekhi, talks about this, how we bullshit ourselves, how we deceive ourselves. And he says, 
that the process, what makes us intelligent is also what makes us susceptible to self-deception. And so we've got these platforms that are intentionally weaponizing all of our biases, all of our kind of narcissism, all of the things that lead us away from truth, lead us away from and, and move it into a, into a more sort of polarizing, more performative, more narcissistic. And all of that has been accelerated under the stress of the pandemic because that information warfare that was already going on then suddenly had life or death importance with the kind of information that was being shared. And so that that dynamic started being really ramped up. So sense-making is a movement that tries to address all of this, that tries to pick it apart so that people can identify where the lack of truth, the misinformation and the disinformation is emerging and occurring, but then also how, and I think this is really important, self-deception point that you do discuss a lot on Rebel Wisdom, and I think it's so important is for us to actually be aware that we're engaging in it as well. We're getting sucked into it and not out of any intentionality necessarily. It's our cognitive biases. It's also what we do when we're overwhelmed. It's what we do when we're caught up. That's also part of it. So part one of sense-making, as I understand it, is how to decipher truth and the lies And then part two is then how to be more truthful yourself and be a more, well, a better, a better faith actor to use Mm. sort of the terminology that, you know, you and your crew use. Yeah. Yeah. I'd want to sort of pull apart. So different people use the word in different ways, sense making. Why I find it really useful. And I don't think any other word really does the job in the same way is it's not quite understanding because it's all of the different dimensions of making sense of the world. So part of it is making sense of the world out there. It's the information that we're taking in. It's the way that we're choosing some media sources and not others. The other parts of it are, how am I being hijacked? How am I being kind of emotionally hijacked by the platforms? How am I kind of becoming tribal? How am I starting to... So there's an element of like mindfulness practice within it. There's an element of self-awareness. The way that we try to use it, it involves these kind of techniques of personal growth. I don't think you can do it just from the kind of intellectual or informational level without realizing because our psychological frailties are being weaponized against us, we can't actually make sense of the world without bringing that into account. Got it. So that's why we we look at like mindfulness practices, different relational practices. Am I really listening to this person? Am I taking them in? How can I listen to more perspectives? How can I take in more perspectives? Mm. So we run a course on sense-making called Sense-Making 101 that starts from the internal, then goes to the relational between two people, and then goes into the kind of outside world. And we give people tasks like a reverse media diet. So whatever you would tend to listen to, go and listen to the opposite Go and subscribe to Fox News or Breitbart if you tend to be kind of more on the left or if you tend to be more on the right. Go and subscribe to Mother Mother Jones or The Guardian or follow Owen Jones on Twitter and see how long you can can stay following him or Ben Shapiro in the same way on the other side. Is that right? Or Sarah Ness is is one of your sort of contributors. Mm. She was a guest on my podcast a couple of episodes back and I got a lot of feedback from people. So she talks through effective communication. Great. I think listeners have got a little bit of an intro Mm. into into what you do. I found that really interesting. You've touched on a couple of things. I want to sort of backtrack a little and we might just cover off the elements that have contributed to what you and others call the war on sense-making. There are a number of really distinct factors and you've covered off a few technology in particular I think it's Mm. amplified accentuated and and it's been the tool that's enabled weaponization I think the frame of the colonization of inner space is a really useful one if you kind of think about you think about all of the time historical frailties or the ways that we've always failed to make sense of the world or we've always been deceiving ourselves or we've always been prone to certain biases those have been weaponized and exploited by all of the tech platforms so we're now yeah, there's this sort of sense of an unfair fight between, and we're not necessarily realizing that the platforms we're using are warping the world around us in the way that they are. That's what they're doing because we're prey to cognitive biases. We're prey to confirmation bias. We don't like to be challenged. All of those things that we need to become more aware of are now being, we're, we're in an unfair fight with these huge 
huge forces and platforms that are yeah, using those against us. The unfair advantage element, I think, is really important. Um, I think throughout our evolutionary history, you know, we've always had this kind of one-upmanship and that kind of thing going on. That's how we've evolved and got more resilient and all of that kind of thing. But it was a level playing field. And I think technology has put us in a position where we are the losers. We can't fight this. They're always going to be ahead of the game and are able to obviously manipulate our cognitive weaknesses and dissonances and so on. But also capitalism. I think it's played a massive role in all of this because it inherently at its core Mm. tries to manipulate our cognitive biases. It tries to actually steer I mean, it's not motivated by truthfulness, is it? Mm. It's motivated by getting a net result and it will lie if it has to. And I was thinking about this walking through Soho the other day, actually listening to one of your interviews and was thinking about how we know it's happening, right? So when we see a sale, a markdown, you know, I was walking through Soho and there's lots of sales Mm. going on and I was thinking, it's not that we think that suddenly they're really discounting and really taking a hit and a sacrifice. We know that all their prices have been adjusted such that they just make a huge profit when they're not on sale. When they are on sale, they make a smaller profit and it's mm. all, you know, we know this is happening. We know they're playing games with us. Mm. And I think that contributes to this war on sense-making, this despair that we feel mm. about the loss of sense because It's all going on around us. We kind of half Mm. know it's happening, but we're powerless. What are some other factors? Like, I mean, am I missing anything in this equation? What else is going on? You're kind of hinting at the difference between lying and bullshitting here. The idea we're being bullshitted to all the time by the appetite. We're in a, we're in a world of infinite bullshit. Can I just pause you there? Because I actually took a quote, um, from one of your, I think, Substack. Mm. newsletter posts and I just encourage everybody, you're one of my recommended Substack contributors, Mm. but I recommend everybody to follow your newsletter, but you can access this and I'll have it all in the show notes. But I think you quote, is it Henry or Harry Frankfurt? Henry Frankfurt. Yeah, a philosopher. Yes, I think. John Vivaki talks about him a lot, so I know about it through him. Yeah, he distinguishes bullshitting from lying. And I should actually just say to listeners, we're having this discussion the day after sort of Boris Johnson half step down, two-thirds step down. Talking of bullshit. Yeah, (laughs) talking of bullshit. But obviously in Australia there's Scott Morrison, there was Trump. These are liars and bullshitters. And the distinction between lying and bullshit I think is really important. A lie is where you know it's not the truth. Yes, Trump is a perfect example. Trump is not really a liar because he's more of a bullshitter. Like he doesn't really believe the things that he's saying, but he doesn't really care. Like it's it's beyond it, it's it's beyond lying because a liar knows that something is not true, and they're trying to persuade you of something the opposite. A bullshitter doesn't really care. They just they're just and kind that's of, the point, isn't it? They don't yeah. care about the truth, and, and we can't really lie. This was John and um, Harry Frankfurt as well talking about. We don't necessarily lie to ourselves, but we do bullshit ourselves. We tell ourselves, we persuade ourselves that something isn't true, or we adjust what we find salient. We kind of ignore things that are uncomfortable and we focus on things that are more comfortable. And that's part of the process as well of kind of largely what a bullshitter does. It changes the salience. So if you look at advertising, for example, advertising is a perfect example of bullshit. Like we don't really believe that that car is going to give us a new relationship or that shampoo is going to kind of make our lives perfect or or bring in a piece or any of this stuff. We don't believe any of that. Like none of us, none of us watch any of those ads and actually believe anything that we see. But what it does is it changes the salience of that particular product. Like it makes that product salient. And so it still works, even though we don't actually believe it. So bullshit is a sort of way of adjusting the salience of different things and the significance of different things. And the point is bullshitting is more dangerous than straight out lying mm. because it muddies our understanding of truth yes. and the value of truth. Yes, and I think one thing I'd like to pick up as well, like we mentioned conspiracy theories a little bit earlier on, and it was actually a bit of a realisation I had in a conversation recently with John Bavaki and Jonathan Pajot where we were talking about kind of how Conspiracy theories have been really kind of rife. And there was a kind of realization of like, well, of course, because we're in an environment that is completely the idea that we could be in a conspiracy or that some people might be pulling the strings behind the scenes. Like, well, that is sort of true. 
in a way. We're surrounded by artifice. We're surrounded by bullshit coming from all sides. So is it any wonder that people kind of then put two and two together and make 73 and end up with a kind of cabal of people who are coordinating this? It's like it's kind of almost inevitable because we, we're in an environment that is lying to us. It's all. the currency. Yeah, it's the currency. The currency mm. is... Bullshit. Artifice and bullshit. And mm. I, I'd highly recommend people check out the work of John Vivaki in particular because that's his main focus is on self-deception. He's a Canadian, isn't he? He's a Canadian psychologist at the University of Toronto. And a peer of Jordan Peterson, which I'd like to get to yeah, in a moment. He was, he was, he's in the same department as Jordan Peterson, has a very interesting relationship with Jordan Peterson. I would say that his work is a deeper resolution of a lot of the topics that Peterson had talked about. He did the series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which was 50 hours of the entire trajectory of kind of Western thought up to the current day. But his main focus is on how and why we 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 bullshit ourselves and what are the practices that we might be able to take on to, to make us less susceptible to that. Um, well, that's a great segue yeah. because I would like to move on to some of the practices mm. that can actually make us less susceptible to bullshit but also make us less bullshitty ourselves. Mm. And you've spoken to so many experts in this area, so you're the conduit. I'm wondering if you could give us sort of a couple of the techniques Mm. that you feel really resonate with people or get real cut through. Yeah, I consider myself more of a curator rather than a conduit. Mm. Yeah, a curator of some of these ideas. Mm. You mentioned Sarah Ness, who's a fantastic, authentic, relating superstar. She did a course for us. Uh, called How to Have Difficult Conversations. That's it. And, and there were lots of techniques that she talked about within that where you kind of just break down what you're trying to achieve. I linked to it at the time when mm. we did the podcast because I did the podcast just ahead of that course right. coming out. So right. there might be some people listening who've, who've done mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. So she talks about authentic relating. Circling is another one. Dialogos is the practice so John Viveki talks, he's, he's really passionate about dialogos. Can you just explain what that means? Yeah, dialogos, as it sounds like, is dialogue. It's a dialogue practice with more than one person, usually with two people, but can be more than, more than that. And by definition, it's a conversation that goes somewhere that you're not expecting or, so, or takes you further than you'd be able to go alone. So mm. where a conversation takes on a life of its own, where you build off each other. And he says that that live form of dialogue is something that fueled the initial kind of Greek philosophy and has always been something that gets reinvented time and time again in history. So there's various practices. There's a practice called inquiry, which is from a tradition called the diamond essence. There's circling, which was re- which is kind of reinvented at Burning Man. Can you tell me how one of these works? What does it look like? I've heard a few of these being done on your platform and, you know, with some of these names they actually discuss a difficult topic by mm-hmm. using these techniques so you get to sort of experience it. So anyone who's intrigued by this mm-hmm. can go and check those out. But give us an example. Like if we were circling right now, mm-hmm. how would it look? We'd be bringing in all of the dimensions of the moment and the relationality between us that are present that are not being foregrounded in the conversation. So, so discussing how we we're, we're, we're in a podcast conversation at the moment, which is largely a kind of intellectual or propositional. So John Bavaki also has amazing frameworks to talk about this. He says there are there are four different ways of knowing. There's the propositional, which is the, the intellectual content, but there's also the participatory, which is the relationality between us. There's the perspectival and there's the there's another P that I always forget. But effectively, there are these different ways of knowing and we're, we're operating in all of them simultaneously. So what would work really well with something like circling or authentic relating is, is bringing in a, some of the other levels of the conversation. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about what your audience might think of me right now. And I'm like, we wouldn't, it, mm. for, for example, or, uh, I'm, I'm, fe- I'm feeling challenged by something you said or whatever it might be. Like, and it, it's, so it's kind of a, it veers into almost like a therapeutic process or a therapeutic relationship. Yes. But to bring in kind of the, the reality, the sort of the deeper levels of the, of the moment and what I've found, I've, I've trained in one of these forms called inquiry. And often it will bring in like bodily sensations. Well, I'm feeling so that. Somatic my, knowledge and. Yeah, somatic mm. knowledge. And it's kind of trying to ground it, um, in a, in a, in a deeper place, a sort of, and trying to attune to the place 
ideally we want to get to the point where we're not entirely sure what we're saying. Like there's a sense of exploration, there's a sense of aliveness, there's Very a sense vulnerable. of yeah, it should. It, it's a vulnerable place. Like I think it's something that needs to be practiced and is very powerful in intimate relationships where we're working through emotions or relationality. And for me, it's a process of really attuning to that that kind of felt sense in myself of what's the novel thing, what's what's the latest, what's the thing that I'm that I'm feeling that I'm not entirely conscious that I'm feeling, and trying to identify that and trying to attune to that sense of novelty. And then in a conversation between two people, can we attune to that sense of novelty as well? It's a difficult thing to express unless you've had an experience of it. I think I know in some ways Mm. because I find when I sort of think about truthfulness, it's a space that many of us feel very nervous about being in, which Mm. I think is why we have such a lack of reflective discussion Mm. in general at a very basic level. When I start to go into spaces like that Mm. and really try to connect at an emotional level and penetrate in many ways, it does come across as threatening to people, but they'll say to me, Oh God, you're being too intense. Mm. You know, anyway, should we talk about the weather? You know, it's, the, it's, there's a real running from it because it does expose our vulnerability, our lack of knowledge, our unknowingness. Mm. And we have to go into an uncertain place. And we're a culture, we're a generation who are so unfamiliar with uncertainty. Mm. Yes. Um, so it's a And also maybe emotional in- vulnerability depends. I don't know if you've got more of that in Australia than we do in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. The UK is particularly, I've got a lot of background in different personal growth practices and different workshops and have facilitated workshops where, and a workshop is somewhere where you have more permission to be more honest and more open and more vulnerable Mm. than you would normally do. Ironically, because you are often there with people that you haven't met before, like, and there's a weird permission that you have with strangers to actually be more open, vulnerable, because you don't have these you're not playing the same persona that you might with someone in the outside world that you might with your boss or with with a family member that you can actually take more risks yes. and develop those skills of relationality or those skills of emotional vulnerability and i feel like that that's one of the dimensions of 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 sense making definitely and that's one of the dimensions of dialogos is often i mean this is a little trick that i think a lot of people can can try is yes please if if you're feeling can you presence what's what's current in in your body? Like, oh, I'm I'm feeling a bit nervous about this, or I'm feeling I'm feeling challenged about this. Because once we do that, actually, it gives us a lot more solidity. If we're rather than kind of trying to operate just from an intellectual perspective, can we bring in? And some places are not suitable for that. Like in a workplace environment, saying, "Oh, I feel I'm I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to 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 fulfil this task that you've given me." Is is a difficult thing to be able to say to your boss, for example. That's why therapy is such an important space because it's one of those few opportunities that we have to be completely honest with someone and have a have a genuine conversation. Like that's kind of why that therapeutic relationship works. Mm. But I think developing those relationships of honesty and vulnerability in our lives generally is is part of that. It's it's the second person. If you've got the first person of kind of inner awareness, the second person of relationality, and the third person of the world out there of sense-making, which is Mm. a useful kind of framework to look at it, then the second person is the the authentic relating part. So tell me, I mean, this is... The, sort of at the personal level, but obviously extrapolating it out to trying to take this sense-making intelligence mm. to, I guess, the, the power brokers, mm. you know, at corporate level, at the political level, at the thought leader level. How would that look? How could life look if we had world leaders who were engaging in some of these sense-making practices? It's a good question. I, there's, there's quite a few people in that I'm connected to and have had conversations with who've wrestled with this how do you build a sort of per, a, a, a culture of more sort of personal growth into politics i i feel like it has to become a cultural force before it becomes a political force i think there are there are a lot of the different frameworks that we've used that we have a, a couple of members of the rebel wisdom community for example who are quite senior civil servants and they've taken some of the models that we've been talking about and tried to kind of bring them into the civil service it's difficult to do that in an environment where it's built on a persona or it's built on a sort of imposter syndrome or all of these other things that come in in the workplace. 
So it has to be a workplace where authenticity is rewarded. And that's a difficult thing to imagine in politics, especially where it's got such a kind of dog eat dog, zero sum game kind of environment. So I think and that's it would the problem, have to be a kind it? of the systematic zero, The zero change. sum game culture that we live in, that's the issue in the first place that sense making is trying to address in yeah. many ways. But I think most people in the sense making community feel that these practices could be the thing that mm. could get us through all of these this fracturing and polarization mm. and overwhelm that we're yeah. feeling and hopefully be the technique that could actually solve the climate crisis, the AI issues, the mm. biotech stuff that's going on. Have I got that right? Like I think there's a sense that this is, this is the sort of the textured yeah. way that we, the technique that we could mm. be using to solve the problems. Yeah, I, there's some truth to that. I'd say there's definitely a sense that the inner and the outer are linked. That there is a a combination, or there is a there's an inner dimension to a lot of the outer problems that we're dealing with. What people have called the meta crisis, the sort of all the different yes. kind of cascading crises of modernity that have a, an inner dimension as well, which is a detachment from ourselves, which is that has a for want of a better word, sort of spiritual crisis or a spiritual dimension. Yeah. Yeah. And also, as John Bavaki would say, a, a disconnect from practice. We used to have practices within our religious traditions that would reconnect us to ourselves, reconnect us to each other, and we've lost that. We're in a secular culture that doesn't really have any of that. Probably those old religious practices wouldn't be sufficient anymore, but he's very much looking at what is the ecology of practices, what are the the different sets of practices we could look at that would help us to kind of reconnect to ourselves, and that would then be the space, yeah, increasing the quality of our relationships and then the solutions that – we may find some of these problems will will have to come from that space of transforming our relationships and transforming ourselves. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. I think if you don't, something that I discussed quite a lot in my previous book, but also I feel that it's just coming up more and more as a thing. And that is when you talk about um, sort of, you know, these sort of moral institutions, we're talking things like we used to have the church, Mm. trade unions, community groups, the scouts movement, Mm. whatever it was, there were these sort of groups that would actually help guide our moral decision-making because we just don't have the capacity to make all the moral choices required these days to navigate a life. So we used to have these sort of structures and edicts that would actually kind of tick off the bulk of them for us, you know, Mm. and steer us. And so we could then get on with our human lives of, you know, feeding kids and so on. We don't have those anymore at a time when the speed of everything is increasing, Mm. the number of moral decisions we need to be making are increasing. Mm. And um, it really is a big part of the issue. And I suppose sense-making is trying to grapple with all of this in sort of this big vacuum where there are no sort of goalposts. I call them moral umpires and that they've been kicked off the footy field of life, you know, and so now it's just a free-for-all. Mm. It's, you know, one-on-one, yeah. you know. As we know, a football game without an umpire and rules mm. is not fun, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I think we've covered off a bunch of things that give people a good indication of what this is all about. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's land. The balls haven't landed anywhere. I think it's very much a movement that is still establishing itself. Yeah. And that's the point in many ways. But one of the terms that comes up a fair bit is sovereignty. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a number of the thinkers in this space use that word. And I kind of 
brace myself when I hear that term mm. because, of course, it was appropriated by a lot of people in the conspirituality space, you know, yeah. to justify what I feel is a whole heap of very selfish behaviour. Like I am a sovereign being and therefore I don't need to listen to any edicts that are about preserving the collective. So if we're talking mm. vaccinations or wearing masks, mm. you know, it's like, no, I am a sovereign being. That to me I think illustrates one of the weaknesses of what's going on at the moment where some of these terms are being weaponized, aren't they? Mm. Or, or being taken from this very open, spiritually integrated space mm. back to the old polarized binary world, you know, where it's like me versus you. Do you feel the same way about some of this stuff that? Yeah, it's interesting. The word sovereignty. We were using that probably a lot three years ago. Yes. Uh, we haven't used it that much since. And I think part of it is because of the political valence that that term now has. It does have a kind of very libertarian sense. And I don't know if it always did and we just weren't aware of it. But there is a sort of sense of, yeah, I I, I am an island and I won't be told what to do. And it, it does. Yeah, that is a really unhealthy. That's one side of the dynamic. The other side is that we're completely interdependent at the same That's time. It. and. The, the human tragedy is that we need to navigate both of those poles and we can't collapse into either one of them because it's a, yeah, it's a dynamic interaction between the two. And so, yeah, I, I do understand why there's some suspicion of the word sovereignty. The way that we've tried to use it is that it implies interrelatedness, but that we can't, we can't do the interrelatedness unless we are able to, to, be aware of our own emotional triggers, to be not codependent with the other person. So there is a kind of, there has to be a kind of independence and, and not to like to, to take on any emotional triggers that I might have in my relating with you as, as my own rather than make them the other person's fault. Like there is a, a, a truth to that sense of that there has to be a certain sense of sovereignty in, a, in our relating to allow us to, to then relate properly. Otherwise, yeah. 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 As, as anyone who's done any kind of therapeutic work or kind of looked critically at their relationships will realize unless you can be comfortable and happy alone, you're unlikely to be happy in yeah. relationship because it's you're about, going to be getting the other person to fill your holes like, or whatever. Yeah, it, it's really about the issue, I think, the nub of what we're talking about here where it gets misappropriated and weaponized mm. and used inappropriately is where it does go into that binary headspace where it's either individualistic or it's subsuming yourself into some socialist collective melange, mm. right? And the point is the responsible place to be is mm. a sweet spot in the middle where you dance appropriately between those two forces. And and as you say, the real meaning, the, the healthy meaning of sovereignty mm. is to be able to do that dance in a responsible yeah. way. And, and if you actually look at any value whatsoever, like freedom being another one, if you take it to its extreme, it turns into anarchy, it turns into chaos. So another thing I'd direct people towards is Ian McGilchrist. And Ian McGilchrist yes. is a really fabulous thinker who talks a lot about the different hemispheres of the brain in particular and how they um, affect the way that we perceive the world. But he talks about this dynamic interrelatedness and every single value that you might name has to exist in a dynamic tension with the opposite. You can't collapse into one or the other. And that's kind of the, that's, that's the way that we have to, yeah, that we have to live. But we live in an either or culture, don't we? And yes. we're just so not used to the nebulous gray area of that and, you yes, know. Yes, yes. There's, there's we the do phrase that, yes, yes and is which another I love. sort of, yeah, is, is very familiar. People are familiar with kind of the integral tradition and Ken Wilber, they were very much looking at yes and that every perspective holds a piece of the truth, but no perspective is complete. Therefore, we need to be able to integrate many different perspectives to approach truth. Which I think is also sort of that thinking has been subsumed into that metamodernism movement, which I'll save for another day. We won't go yeah. down that rabbit hole, but it's all interconnected. It's, these thinkers are all sort of speaking to each other, so to speak. 
we'll try this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it'll work, David, but I was at sort of a, somebody I just met. I met, where did I meet her? I met her at a party in Paris. She invited me to her place in Notting Hill for dinner and I stayed the night there and I met her husband. And this happens a lot to me. I get invited over to people's houses because they've got someone in their lives who they need the climate crisis explained to them. And I know when it's going to happen. And I sit down to dinner and um, she introduces me to her partner in this case. And you know, essentially drops the climate bomb into the, onto the dinner, dinner table. And I'd be interested to see if we could do this. I would love for you to almost break down where the sense making collapses and where it could be improved in the discussion that we had that evening. It was only a couple of days ago, but it's very familiar. And I want to do it because so many people listening to this podcast write to me about how the frustration they feel around this issue, because the same, I think, cognitive traps get laid. And I think it'd be great to get your take on how we might be able to navigate those traps better in the sort of spirit of truthfulness. So generally what happens is I get told by somebody, well, listen, scaring people with all of that information never works. To which I often say, well, I think we're at a juncture in history where we just need to know the truth and we need to grow up and harden up and face it. I think that comes up in a lot of hard discussions oh, well, don't scare people. Let's take the nice cocooned route. Have you got anything to say on that? And you don't have to have something to say on all of this. I've got a, I've got a number of sort of things that get lobbed at me. It's a very good question. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is, to be honest. Um, I know that there are, there's a lot of people in our, who we featured on Rebel Wisdom, people like Daniel Schmachtenberger talk about the kind of the meta crisis as being these kind of interlocking different crises and any one of them is feels overwhelming and there's a real it i don't know if there's an answer to that there's the sort of the doomer optimists movement who are people who've kind of faced up to the reality of what of all of the different kind of crises that we're facing and have managed to find a kind of optimism on the other side of that and put their energy into kind of local permaculture. Turn it into action. Turn it into action. That's the sort of doomer optimism idea. But there are others who do find it completely overwhelming and debilitating to grasp the magnitude of the crises that a lot of people say that we're in. And I I don't know if there's necessarily an answer to take Daniel as an example from listening to some of his interviews on Rebel Wisdom. I get the impression that he very much feels like we've got to push through that truth and mm. the discomfort. And that's certainly where I sit. I feel that a lot of our problems today is we run away from discomfort. We've got no resilience to it. Another thing that I get hit with is invariably I will talk about how capitalism and con- overconsumption and our consumption, you know, mentality is at the core of all of this, you know, and that's what needs to switch. And, of course, then I get hit with, oh, what, you think communism worked? I suppose it's a prime example of binary thinking and a lack of an ability to go, yes, and. Well, I would say that it's not just capitalism. I mean, that was one of the the dynamics that I think, if you look look at kind of what, again, Daniel Schmattenberg talks about this probably more than anyone else. It's like, what are the the generator functions of the meta crisis. And it's actually deeper than capitalism. It's a kind of operating system that is, capitalism is, is, is based on, but so is communism. So are the other kind of systems as well. And socialism, fascism. Yeah. I actually recorded, um, a set of interviews with, and they're, they're sort of game theoretic traps as well, like game theory. And that's that all or nothing, right? Mentality. Yeah. Is that what you mean by the game? Th- I know that it's, it's the more that there are certain kind of traps in any kind of human relating. For example, if you don't know who the sucker at the table is, it's you. That kind of idea. Uh, the, the trap, the multipolar trap, the tragedy of the commons, prisoner's dilemma, all of these different kind of game theoretic dynamics are kind of deeper than any of the particular systems. So kind of familiarizing yourself with that. So you're not. Because the, the one thing I would say is that the, the concept of mimetic immune systems, I think, is really important. Tell us what that is. Um, certain words or certain phrases are going to bring up immune systems on one side. Like if you use the word capitalism to anyone who feels themselves to be kind of against socialism or um, on the right or, or in any way kind of that's immediately going to trigger a reaction in the same way that some other words or terms – 
I think realizing like what are the t- words or terms on the different side of the political spectrum that are going to bring up immediate reactions and an immediate kind of defense, an immune reaction. And so realizing that our communication, how do we communicate in a way that doesn't trigger those kind of doesn't step on those landmines of particular terms, particular arguments that people are already familiar with. Now, that's a really important thing to learn, I think. What would be your suggestion to me and everybody else who's been in that trap? What would be your suggestion in terms of terminology? I mean, we're talking just basic terminology here. When you're talking about, you know, some of these base issues, because what I'm often met with is mm. how the supply-demand cycle's got this all under control. Mm. Why mess with it? Yeah. Um, and I'll just jump ahead here by going, mm. well, I often have to sort of have the discussion with people and go, well, let's think about that. The supply-demand cycle assumes this idea of infinite resources on a finite planet. Yeah. That just doesn't mathematically or physically stack up, you know. Um, so that's sort of what I generally try to explain to people when they bring that up. But yeah. back to the capitalism terminology, which you write, absolutely mm. triggers things and you go then go down a, a sort of a, a lane way that you really don't want to be going and it's not helpful. Mm. What would be better phraseology in a situation like that? I'm reminded of something like Extinction Rebellion that was very successful in a lot of ways at kind of drawing attention to the problem, but was very much infused with a certain political valence. And I think a huge missed opportunity because why could they not have included like environmentalism is often framed in a very left-wing anti-capitalist way. And yet there's a whole host of sort of conservatives who are concerned about what's happening to the planet or what's happening to the environment that I think they alienate in the way that the messaging works. So are there, are there kind of frames that you can get buy-in from this person about what they care about? Things that you can talk about, like that, that you can give some examples of things that they, that they would also share. Are there, are there common, can you avoid getting hung up on the specific actions or the specific diagnoses and talk about some of the, can, can you build a certain coherence or a certain kind of An example. connection first? Because in, in Australia, this is the realm that I need, that I work in. Mm-hmm. And so I always talk about it in terms of the fact that renewables are now to- make total economic sense. And isn't it awesome that we've managed to be able to shift things in that direction? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I find that common territory. However, David, I still get a little bit unstuck there in my own argument and I, and I get a little bit, I'd love your take on this because that's still sort of buying into the supply demand, the market will sort it out mm. um, argument, which I personally believe works to a certain point. But it's yeah. a little bit like that adage, you know, trying to solve a problem with the methodology or ideology that caused it in the mm. first place is insanity. And so that supply demand thing and renewables are a great example of it can only take us so far mm. and it, at a certain speed. And the problem with the, the climate crisis is the lack of speed. We're now at a point where it's we're making good progress slowly. I heard Ed Miliband do a talk the other day and he said, good progress slowly sounds great for most things, but for the climate crisis it's the same as doing nothing because it won't get us there and it's speed right now that's the issue. So, yeah, you can kind of get into that trap as well where you hand over to the other side to a certain point, but then you've also got to go, and it's not going to take us the whole way, you know. Yeah. It's exhausting, isn't it? Mm. I mean, yeah, I think the sense-making thing is it, it is yeah. hard work. Yeah. I mean, I would suggest a couple of people to talk to who yeah. have applied a lot of these techniques and a lot of these kind of frameworks to that specific topic. Someone like Alex Evans from the Larger Us Project is someone I've come that across I've, him on your site, yes. Yeah, he, he was a government advisor at various of the kind of climate events. He talks about polarisation, doesn't he? He talks about polarisation. He he uses a lot of uh, Jonathan Haidt's terminology and is very familiar with Peter Levine and polyvagal theory and a lot of these kind of more trauma-informed ways of working and how do we communicate in a way that doesn't trigger and 
he, he would be someone who's got a lot more kind of speciality in this particular conversation, but with an awareness of a lot of these other sort of Well, topics. why don't I hold that question and I'll follow up. So listeners, if you're intrigued by all of this, leave it with me. I will go and follow up Alex and see how far I get there. We haven't got too much time and I've taken up a fair bit of my time with you, David, with my technological problems, which seems to just come with me wherever I go. What I might like to do is I don't want to let the Boris Johnson lies lack of sense-making kind of phenomenon go because we're living it right now here in London. It's all Mm -hmm. happening around us. And it's also very familiar to Australians, which make up sort of 60% of my audience, Mm -hmm. um, because we went through all of this with um, Scott Morrison where we Mm -hmm. sat there baffled that there are these leaders that we sort of a little under our radar slip into power. Mm. I mean, Brexit was a prime example of that idea of we weren't paying attention. I was here Mm. when Brexit happened last, you know, three years ago or whenever it was, observed Brits waking up the next day going, hang on, what happened? What did we just do? I think that we've observed this with Trump. We've observed it with Scott Morrison in Australia. Over here it's been Boris Johnson. The lies and the bullshit and the fact that these these men feel, and it's not just men, um, but it's a culture, It's that is the culture. Kind of probably is. Predominantly <laughs> I think it is. You're right. And it's the, cult, the predominant culture that this very uh, elite toffee, white, male sort of mindset, Mm. which very, the lies and the bullshit seem to be about trying to hang on to their their power at a time when it's been severely questioned. It's almost like Mm. it really represents, you know, sort of the downfall of Rome. We're watching Mm. this really bad behaviour, which is a reaction to them being threatened. What have you made of it all? I mean, you must have people coming up to you going, how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of the fact that a big bunch of us voted this guy in and we've enabled, we've allowed this to happen? And and how do we get to this? Yeah. So, yeah, how, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing for me is the difference in the political systems between the UK and the US. In a way, Boris hasn't got away with it. Like he, It still actually does matter that whether you lie to the people in the UK like there was accountability that the party have eventually got rid of him. I mean, the, 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 the kind of site, 42 the site of, members yeah, the site of how many ministers having to quit to force him out was astonishing. Like we've never seen anything like that in British politics. We've never, he will probably go down as the most catastrophic prime minister we've ever had. And, but if you look at Trump, for example, still has the Republican party in the palm of his hand. The Republican party has been completely hollowed out by having to kind of lie and buy into Trump's bullshit. Like there's a big difference between the two political systems, which I think is a healthier one. I think that there is there is still a sense of, call me a, call me a kind of patriot, but I feel like there is still more of a residual sense of truth in the UK system than there is in a lot of other places, particularly in the, in the US. I think the US is kind of largely lost in in terms of there's no sense of a there's no sense of a civic space in the US that is not polarized that is not party political that is not fragmented in some way there is still in the UK for various reasons there's the BBC which yes, for all it's had its a failings, lot to do with this yeah is is still a kind of sheet anchor on the national conversation there is an independent civil service in government that maintains its kind of it, it it, in America, the, the entire civil service changes every time the institute, the the um, executive changes. There is a sense of independent judiciary here, whereas in the US, it's completely poli- politicized, like the Supreme Court the Supreme being a perfect exa- example. Mm. So I'm I'm a little bit hopeful that there is an opportunity in the UK for a sense of truth to maintain. We're in a post-truth world. In many ways, I think America's further along that that line because of the commercial pressures push us towards the, the dynamics we talked about at the beginning. It it encourages it does not encourage truth seeking that challenges the audience, especially even even like the the institutions in America, like the New York Times being a perfect example. There are certain topics they find it very difficult to be truthful about or to commission stories about because they're a subscription model, and it's far easier if. If you put out a story about a public figure or a particular topic that the audience don't like, 
you will get people unsubscribing. Far more will unsubscribe than will subscribe because you've touched a difficult topic. So it pushes people towards the safe topic. It pushes people towards ideological conformity. And that, so the commercial pressures on truth are far more deep rooted in America than they are, I think, here in the UK, even though they're, they're really bad in the UK, especially Brexit was an incredibly destabilizing thing. So there's, there's two things. One is like, how can someone be so self-deceiving that as Boris was to believe that he was going to be able to kind of maintain? And this was something that I think people are now briefing what he was doing over the last couple of days, like the, the level of lack of awareness or manipulation of the truth or just complete they kind of think he's gone a bit, they were, he went a bit mad. The idea that he could have survived with almost all of his government kind of turning against him was ludicrous. And for no other reason than that Boris Johnson wanted to keep Boris Johnson in power. There was no sense that he had any kind of political vision beyond that. He was a chaotic figure who just wanted to be in charge and was in charge because he kind of failed upwards to yeah. that point. And that's a that's a real in a way, Boris being in power is an indictment of the British system where it's so centered on on Eton and Oxbridge and so yeah, the, these kind of incredibly privileged men who believe that it's their destiny to be prime minister. And in a way, just that belief in destiny is what put Boris where he was. So that's the bad part of the British system. The good part is that we we have managed to get rid of him. And I think he will be gone from British public life in a way that Trump and what well, Trump has done to the Republican Party will maintain. And I don't know enough about Australia to, to compare, to be honest. Look, there's certainly parallels. And I actually do think that the three blokes do represent a certain eruption. They represent, they're very much a reflection of the wrongness and corruption that has been going, you know, sort of festering for a very long time. And I sort of referred to COVID as the great revealer. You know, it very much exposed a lot of the weaknesses in all of our systems, healthcare, political, climate, environmental level. And so we got it put up in our faces. And of course, it was perfect. We were sent to our rooms to have a good hard think about ourselves. We were put into lockdown and all of this stuff was put in front of us. We're all on the internet. We couldn't escape it. We couldn't unsee it. Interesting to observe what we've done off the back of it because I don't know that we took the lessons. But I feel that what's been happening at this with these, you know, white old blokes, toffee blokes, is the same. It's another eruption and a revealer, you know, of this sort of rot that has mm. been occurring. And I think it's taken us by surprise. It's taken these men by surprise. And they're, they're flailing. They're grasping. I'd be interested to see what you think. Has the lying always been happening and that because of social media, because of a whole bunch of things, including COVID, it's been revealed. We're suddenly seeing it's out in the open and the Me Too movement contributed to it. It called for a certain amount of accountability. In Australia, Scott Morrison went down due to a bunch of lies in and around some sexual harassment and, um, well, rape allegations within his party. Not dissimilar to what's happening here. Um, so, yeah, I think all of these forces exposed it, ripped the scab off it all and exposed the wound. Has it always been there or is are these lies and bad behaviour a reaction to a sort of a, a force that's been torn down? And like a two-year-old when you take the toys away, they go berserk, you know, and they yeah. really act out in a primal way. Is yeah. that what's going on? Which one is it, do you think? Well, it's interesting you talked about COVID as the revealer because the word apocalypse in Greek is actually means revealing. And there was something apocalyptic about that time, as you say, we're kind of basically left to contemplate the quality of our relationships, the quality of our relationships with ourselves. And one of the, the great opportunities now, I think, that we're seeing things like the Great Resignation, where lots of people are leaving their jobs. Like the positives are, I think people are asking questions about kind of purpose and meaning and direction in a new way, in a way that they weren't before. I don't know how much COVID is related to what's happened with with Boris. I mean, obviously, him lying about the COVID parties and Downing Street were a big part of it. More yeah. so that we're in a culture where things are being revealed. COVID has been one element. Yeah. I think Me Too. I think... Um, I think social media, social media social media, and decentralised kind of alternative media has been an accelerator on 
feedback loops. So Jonathan Haidt talks about this, that something happened in about 2014, that almost the volume was started to be turned up on so many different things. And he dates that to the widespread use of social media. And that it's when iPhones like really a, got to a level yeah. of sophistication. I think that was, is the big turning point. Yeah, there was a great, I think it was when he was on Sam Harris most recently, where they talked about, imagine that someone turned up the gravitational constant on what would happen if someone turned up gravity, where you'd find like planes falling out of the sky, or you'd find like, it would have huge effects on society. And he says, that's basically what happened in 2014 with social media, people just started turning up the volume on our interactions, on the way that we, on the feedback loops. And and that, a lot of the things that we've seen since then have been part of that process of like the destabilizing effect that that's had on society and on relationships and on so many things has been part of this process. Like it's almost like someone changed a fundamental constant of our relating and so much of what we've seen afterwards has been a, a symptom of that. That's a great explainer. And I think, yes, you're right, that we're having eruptions as things just don't cope. And because yeah. they are, they've been fractious, they've been in a discord to the natural sort of um, flow and dynamics of life, right? And so, yeah, these men who have been behaving in a certain way, they just have to be spat out, right? You know, they just, they don't fit. It's kind of, um, I think the 2014 thing is a really good explainer. And we're just, mm. it's take, it's a bit of a lag time. We're starting to see the eruptions, you know? Yeah. I think that's probably a good note to finish on because what it does is expose how important this new skill set of sense making mm. is right now. Because yeah. if we've got these eruptions of, you know, and all the balls are in the air, and we have no leadership that has stepped into the fray mm. to take the place of what was in the past, I guess, what religion provided, then we need to be dis- have at least a framework for discussing a new way, right? Mm. I mean, yes. it's the very least that we can put on the table. Yeah. Do you have hope for where this is all going to lead? Like what's going to fill the void? You know, do you feel we spoke off off air about the fact that we're both trying to work out What's the next thing? Where do we go as just, you know, individuals trying to contribute to this discussion? What are some of your thoughts in that area? And we can wind up there. I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful. I, I feel like we're going through very rocky times. I think we're going through something that is likely to be a kind of initiation process. We're in a shift like we've never experienced Certainly never in our lifetimes. I think it's at least as big as whatever happened post-Second World War and the creation of like that whole global order is breaking down for sure. And I think it's very easy to look at things and to be overwhelmed by the size of the transition that we're going through. But I, I'm hopeful. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we'll get through it. I feel like it's going to feel like a kind of near-death experience. And only that is actually going to sort of change our behavior. Um, but I... I don't think we've come this far to kind of fail now. I'm also, because I've, I've facilitated a lot of group retreats, group experiences. And what I come back to is the difference in when people come together, they come together on Friday night. And then on the Sunday, we ask them to kind of look around, like look around at kind of the people you've met over the course of this, this weekend. And people start laughing because they've had so much deeper experiences with some of the people in that room they've had with so many people. In, in their lives, they found new parts of themselves. Like things can shift really quickly. And I think we're very isolated. We're very kind of, we're, we're set against each other by the platforms that I've talked about. But I think we, it's, it's possible to get past that. And it's actually, we have that we have the innate human capacities that we've been alienated from, that we've been, we've lost a lot of touch with. But I think we have capacities within ourselves that we're, we're not even aware of. And kind of the practices and the, the work and the personal growth stuff for me is so important to bring those back online. I believe implicitly there is a link between the inner and the outer and we need to pay attention to the inner. Uh, and I've experienced a lot of yeah pretty profound changes in my own life. And, and that gives me hope that I think as a culture we can find yeah. our way. I find I I derive a lot from what you say, a lot of um, hope from this idea of just first of all acknowledging that we are at a really difficult time. And I think Mm. if people can just first acknowledge that, 
that actually dials down a fair bit of the overwhelm because it's ah, this is an appropriate response. Yeah. This is all fair enough that we're struggling. Now what? You know, so it does actually get you to that now what stage when you, when we all acknowledge that this is tough, this is big, big historical sort of moment that we're straddling. And then I also think that the other piece that I really take from what you've just said is that um, it is in our nature. We are actually a species that have evolved to where we are now out of cooperation. We lean towards it. It actually is the thing that makes us happy. And so I feel that that's the, that's where I derive hope is yeah. that we actually prefer being cooperative. We've just had a lot of noise and distractions taking us away from it. If we can strip those away and these eruptions are helping with the stripping back, then we can actually get to our true essence and it doesn't have to be so difficult because our true essence will just guide us, hopefully. Yeah, fingers crossed. Thank you so much, David. And, look, we didn't get to a discussion on Jordan Peterson. We share an intrigue around the phenomenon that is Jordan Peterson, but perhaps we can have another another discussion another day when we've... Yeah. We've, we've... Well, I would direct people towards the piece that is coming out next week, uh, What Happened to Jordan Peterson on Rebel Wisdom. I'm going to read slash listen to that and perhaps we can pick up um, a bit of a discussion down the track on, on Jordan because he is a really interesting phenomenon. Thank you so much. We'll speak Thank to you. you soon. I reckon I kind of wrapped things up here already with a few takeaways in my kind of wrap up with David at the end there. I'll just say though that my main aim in having this conversation was to get fresh chat happening around these kinds of topics. Perhaps I could just ask now then if I could get your feedback on any aspects of the conversation you'd like to see taken further. It's an area that's really interesting me at the moment, and I guess I just want to get a bit of an indication of what your thoughts are on it all. Now, of course, the best place to chime in and let me know your thoughts is over at my Substack newsletter, and that's at sarahwilson.substack.com or on Instagram in the comments when I share the post on this. To be honest, I do this whole podcast thing, also the newsletter, to have a more interesting conversation, a more nourishing time on this planet with people like you who want to join in. And look, just another word on my monetization process. I've been doing both this podcast and my newsletter for free for almost a year. And I did it because I'm wanting to break a bit from the big corporate platforms, but at the same time, I need to earn a living. And so just a reminder, I now allow advertising on my site and you probably notice and success and ability for me to continue this podcast is largely by getting rated across the various platforms and having lots of listeners. So please do share if you like what I'm doing here. And on Substack, if you like the conversation, please do join the paid subscriber community. Radio. So over and out and here's to dancing around together with many more wild ideas and ways to come. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.